Our reading today comes from John 6, 1 through 15, 25 through 40, 48 through 51, and 59 through 61. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he, knew, he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five hundred in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard of it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? The word of the Lord.
Jumping into a new sermon series today, uh, our I Am series, we're up through Easter. We're going to be looking at these seven statements of Jesus that he made about himself. Uh, Those seven statements are found only in the Gospel of John. Jesus calls himself the bread of life, the light of the world, the gate for the sheep, the good shepherd, the way, the truth, and the life, the true vine, and the resurrection and the life. And we're going to take one of these each of the next seven weeks and then end with a resurrection on the life of the uh, resurrection and the life on Easter Sunday morning. Um, these are important statements to us because Jesus made these statements about himself. You know, people like to make what they want out of Jesus, but the most important thing to understand are the things that Jesus said about himself. How did he name himself? What did he call himself? How did Jesus understand his own identity? And so the Apostle John is unique of all the gospel writers. You'll find in the first three gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, they're, they're quite different than the Apostle John. And we'll see that throughout. John is a poet, and John is unique in the way that he talks about Jesus. Only he brings up these seven I am's, and it's quite poetic the way that he speaks about Jesus. The way he remembers what Jesus said and the way he puts it is quite different for us, and you'll see that throughout this series. And my hope for you is that, and for me, is that we will encounter Jesus in a fresh way. I mean, one thing you're going to be blown away by is Jesus's brilliance. Uh, Jesus's brilliance is found in his simplicity. The most brilliant thinkers who have ever lived are not the guys that you listen to and you're like, Wow, that's so complicated, I have no idea what you said. The most brilliant guys that have ever lived can think on that level, but can speak to us in a way that we can understand it, that even a two-year-old child can understand it. That's who Jesus is. I am the bread of life is simple enough for a little baby child, basically, as soon as they can start understanding how important bread is, to know what that means. And you can be in your 80s, 90s, you can walk with Jesus for a lifetime and still be looking into what it means for Jesus to be your bread of life. And so we're going to marvel at the brilliance of Jesus, but I also want you to be impacted in the heart by Jesus. Don't let it stay up in the mind. Certainly think about it. Ruminate on these things mentally, intellectually. But let's make sure that we're engaging with Jesus on the level of the heart, on the level of belief, which is what Jesus is calling us to in John. So today we're talking about the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. First of all, we're going to see the need of all people for the bread of life. And then we're going to see how Jesus is the bread of life. And then we're going to talk about what it looks like to embrace Jesus as the bread of life. The need all people have for the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life, embracing Jesus as the bread of life. So first of all, this morning... Jesus is the bread of life, the need all people have for the bread of life. So Jesus arranges these events in John 6 on purpose. You may have never noticed this before, and it's interesting that John does it this way. The, the feeding of the 5,000, or really actually it's probably more like 10,000 because it was just 5,000 men. So I'm going to really call it the feeding of the 10,000. I think that's really a more accurate name for this, but even though we've come to know it the other way. But all of the gospel writers, it's actually the only miracle that all of the gospel writers include in their gospels. Why? It's unbelievable 
I mean, he fed 10,000 people. Okay, so they're like, wow, let's make sure we include this. But only John, of all the writers, is the one that links the feeding of the 5,000 to Jesus saying this statement about himself, I am the bread of life. And it's very intentional that, that John would do it this way. I don't know why the other writers didn't do it this way, but John does it this way. And he gives us some insight into maybe why when John tells us the purpose of his writing in chapter 20, 30 through 31, John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John tells us directly, straight up, this is why I'm writing this letter. I am writing you this letter about Jesus, this gospel about Jesus, so that you will believe in his name. John is writing, versus the other gospel writers, John is writing to a general audience. He's writing that all men and women and children and students, whoever you are, socioeconomic background, racial background, Whatever you're dealing with in life, he's writing so that you might believe in Jesus as the Son of God. And so he brilliantly pairs the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 with the statement, I am the bread of life. Why? Because he wants us to believe that Jesus is the bread of life. Wherever you are, he is the one that you are hungry for. So first of all, how are we hungry? Well, we are physically hungry. Let's not gloss over the rather obvious point here that these people, when they are fed that day, are physically hungry. They had no food, and they had no way to provide for this food themselves. They are not unlike the Israelites back when they were wandering. They had just crossed the Red Sea in Exodus 16. They start grumbling. They start getting hangry in the desert. They get hangry on Moses. And Moses inquires of the Lord, what do you do? Why do we leave this out here? These people have no food. Manna falls from the sky. Now, Jesus doesn't let it go that far. In John chapter 6, he doesn't let the people get all frustrated and hangry. He just sees that there's a problem. There's 10,000 people and no food. Actually, the disciples call it uh, to his attention, but of course he knew it in advance. The same thing happens in John 6. And so look with me at verses 5 and 6. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? I want you to take note of this, the end of this verse. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So Jesus wants Philip and the disciples and the people there to get to a point where they actually understand that they're hungry. He wants them to feel that gnawing sense of hunger before he fills their bellies. Jesus already knows what he's going to do, but he, he orchestrates this miracle so that people will understand their need for him. He wanted them to realize that you have needs, we all have needs that we cannot provide for ourselves. Maybe today you are hungry physically, like maybe you are really struggling financially to pay the bills. Uh, Maybe emotionally, 
you're struggling. Maybe relationally you're struggling. Uh, Maybe you're struggling in some other way in your life and you are acutely aware that in this life you have needs that you cannot provide for yourselves. And Jesus at times waits He waits. Jesus intentionally waits and he puts himself in that situation knowing himself what he will do for us in the future. We don't know what he knows, but he wants us to experience that need that we have for him so that then he can meet our need later. Again, sometimes it takes longer than than it does here in John chapter 6, but Jesus knows himself what he will do for you. Jesus is with you in your hunger. He was with the people in the wilderness on that day. He was with the people in the countryside that day, and he is with you right now today in those needs that you know that you have that you cannot provide for yourself, and only he knows what he will do for you, but he loves you and he is with you in that moment. He is our daily bread. And so we're not just physically hungry. Our physical hunger points to another reality. It points to the fact that we are eternally hungry. It's an eternal hunger. The, uh, the hope for eternal life is woven throughout this passage. Jesus is linking our physical limitations, our physical needs, our finitude as human beings to our longing to have that eternal question for life, the source of life answered for us. You know, many today in our society would say that they don't really care about eternal life, that they think it's kind of a hoax that we would actually, as Christians, believe that there's anything beyond death. But, you know, right now we have the coronavirus going around. And as COVID-19 or coronavirus, whatever we're supposed to call it right now, as it's going around, uh, we are acutely aware that we are not masters of our own lives, even here in the West, even with our health care, um, even with our, our cleanliness, even with our medical awareness, we cannot avoid death. Now, I'm not here to, to scare anyone. I think we have, um, there's a lot of information going around, and um, we have an information crisis as much as we have a health crisis. But I think we do have a health crisis on our hands. And as we contemplate something like the coronavirus, we have to to ask the question of ourselves as Christians, what does Jesus being our eternal bread of life have to do with the way that we face the coronavirus? You know, most of us, as as we engage with something like the coronavirus, we recognize we're not okay with death. Like, we we don't want to die, um, obviously. None of us do. And we, yet we fall into the trap in the West, in the United States in particular, I can go months without really thinking about death. I'm so busy doing life, I'm not thinking about death. And, and you know, modern medicine has, has put us in a situation where, you know, most of us really don't have to think about death that often, uh, or at least ourselves dying, until later in life. I mean, our life expectancy is, is really long. I visited a village in the Philippines when I was 20, where the life expectancy for men and women was around 41 because of malaria. And so I'm playing uh, basketball on this team against uh, people who are in their 20s like me, and their life expectancy is 20 more years. Mine is 60 more years, 65. 
we in the West can almost trick ourselves into thinking that we might not have to face death. And, and I think that the thing about the coronavirus that's, that's so scary for us is not just, I mean, it's, it's not, we're not really afraid we're going to die necessarily, but it's the idea that we're not in control of it. That there's something out there that we don't understand, that we don't have a vaccine for, that we're not in control of death. And actually, we're not. We're not in control of death. And so for us, this passage this morning, as it hits us where we are with the coronavirus, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is our answer to death? What is our answer? Jesus claims not to have the answer to death. He claims to be the answer to death, to the fear of death. You know, Jesus came, you have to understand that as amazing as this miracle is, the feeding of the 10,000, as amazing as it was as he fed those people in the wilderness— back in Exodus chapter 16. As amazing as those things are, Jesus' way of providing life for us is not confined to moments like that. You've got to understand, if those moments happen and God did a miracle, that's really cool, but that doesn't actually affect my life today, other than the fact that that was really amazing that God did that. But if Jesus is the bread of life, if he's not just doing a miracle to show us that he's the bread of life, but he's actually the bread of life, then that means he came not just for those people then, but also for me and you now if we believe in him. You see, Jesus' mission wasn't confined to that one moment. His mission wasn't confined to those people in that crowd, those 10,000 people on that day. His mission was far more broad than that. It was so that whoever would believe in him would be held fast through death. And so that those who physically die, we will physically die unless Christ returns first. Those who physically die will not spiritually die if we are born again, if we believe in him. That is the message of the eternal bread from heaven. Jesus came so that people today in Wuhan, China, in Hubei province, China, in Daegu, South Korea, in Veneto, Italy, Venice, Italy, Qom, Iran, Seattle, Washington, and wherever else the coronavirus spreads, that they, if they believe in him, can have hope and life in his name. That's what he wants. He is the bread of life for the world. That's what John wants us to understand about Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came for us physically and eternally because we were hungry, and that encompasses all of us. So Jesus is the bread of life. He is the bread of life, and he shows us that in this passage in various ways. One of the coolest ways he shows us this in the passage is that he's the greater Passover lamb. We see this, that the miracle, you see everything Jesus does, you're gonna find his brilliance throughout John. It's just incredible. So he times his miracle to be during the Passover, during the Passover. And so at that time, much like coronavirus when it hit Wuhan, it happened at Spring Festival or Chinese New Year. Everybody's traveling, there's tons of crowds. All right, the same thing, the same time in history for the people of Israel, everybody's traveling, everybody's coming around. Everybody is crowding around Jesus because he's a healer, it says in verse two, but also because it's the Passover. It's a time when they have time to listen to him. And he times his miracle because he's trying to say that he is the greater Passover. So let's talk about the Passover. What's the history behind the Passover? The Passover was first instituted in Exodus chapter 12. And if you know your Bible history, you're familiar with this. If you're not, let me recap it for you. So the people of God, they've been slaves. God is throwing all these plagues down on Egypt. 
and God is freeing them through the last plague, the, the killing of the firstborn in Egypt. And God says to them, if you will, Israelites, if you will trust me, and you will kill a lamb, and you'll plead the blood of the lamb over your doors and over your house, then when the angel of death passes by, it will pass by your home, and you will be shown mercy. Your firstborn will not die. Your family will be safe. Then he said, I want you to take that lamb, and I want you to have a meal, a Passover meal, and I want you to eat that lamb, and I want you to prepare some unleavened bread. And when you eat that lamb, what is it doing? You are preparing yourself for your journey into freedom through the Red Sea. And when you eat that bread, what are you doing? You're preparing yourself to, to move out in haste because you're going to be on the run and there's no time for that bread to have yeast in it and rise. You just need to eat it and go. And so the people were freed and, and this was commemorated throughout the history of Israel as the, the big meal. This is the Christmas for Israel at that time, Okay. And so the people, year after year, since it was instituted, perhaps for a couple thousand years have been eating this meal, year after year. Jesus times his miracle, why? To say that I am the bread of life. I am the greater Passover meal. If you will look to me, I will show you mercy. If you will plead the blood of my, my, my blood over your life, I will show you mercy. If you will take me in, I will nourish your souls. I am the greater Passover meal. We need something greater, bigger than an annual meal. And everybody knew that. Or, you know, a lot of people weren't even thinking about it. You know, they were just like happy to hang out with their family, just like we are on Christmas, you know. People aren't really thinking about it, but Jesus is saying, this thing that is on your mind, these rituals that are on your mind, the eating of the lamb, the eating of the bread, I am the greater Passover. I am the bread of life. And if you will take me in, then I will be, I am the lamb of God. I will be your lamb that will take away your sin. I'll provide nourishment for you. So he's the fulfillment of the Passover. You know, Jesus throughout this passage calls the feeding of the 5,000 on the Passover a sign. Now, what is a sign? A sign is something that points us ahead to a greater reality. It points us ahead to a greater reality. For example, if you're driving down the road and you see a sign that says Montana, 30 miles, that sign is great. But that sign is only good insofar as you go on and travel to get to Montana, which is in 30 miles. That's where you want to go, all right? The sign is only good in that it points ahead to a greater reality. And that's what Jesus is saying. This, this sign is really amazing, but what's more amazing is if you will take me by faith and journey on ahead, I am much, much greater. My bread is much, much greater than what you've seen me do with these 10,000 people. So he's the greater Passover lamb. He's also the true manna from heaven. We find that in 31 through 34. So I want you to follow along with me in that section, okay? So in verse 31, the people say, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread to eat from heaven. The question is, who is he in verse 31? The people are saying he gave them bread to eat. And Jesus calls them on that. He's like, do you think the he in verse 31 is referring to Moses? 
Do you think that Moses gave the people bread from heaven? No, who gave the bread from heaven? Who gave the bread from heaven is the Father. The Father gave the bread from heaven to the people of God. And who gave you the bread here this day? Jesus, when he broke the bread, he gave thanks and he looked to heaven. He did that intentionally. Why? Because the blessing of the bread, it comes from heaven. It comes from the Father. So Jesus is saying, the bread that comes from heaven is the true manna. It is the true bread. And then he goes on and he says in verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And the people are riveted. They say, well, then give us this bread, sir. And that's when Jesus reveals to them when he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me will not thirst. He's saying the father is the one that provides the bread. He provided the manna back in Exodus 16. He provided the bread here earlier in my miracle and he has provided me for you. I am the bread of God. I am the one that has come down from heaven. I am the one. I am the bread. I am the living bread, the bread of life, not just because I say, but because I'm sent. I am sent from the Father. Verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The problem with the manna is you can only collect it for a day. And the problem with the earlier miracles, you could only eat it for that day. There were some leftovers. We'll talk about the leftovers in a minute. But eventually that bread would run out. What we need is eternal bread. You know, we need more than just daily bread. We need Jesus to be our daily bread, but we need him to be our eternal bread. We need him to give us life eternal forevermore. And so like the father sent the manna in the wilderness, like the father sent the bread on the mountainside, so the father has sent the son to give eternal life to those who will eat of it. And then he says, the bread is my flesh. This is talking about Jesus being the bread of life. He says, the bread is my flesh in verse 51. So this leaves us with the question, is Jesus serious? He says, I am the bread of life. Is he really serious? He's like, I'm, I'm actually extremely serious. Like, I, I am literally serious. In fact, he, he takes it to the point where he says, the bread I give to the world is my flesh. And in verse 53, he says, which is not in your, in your bulletin, just for the sake of time, I didn't include that, but he said, I'll tell you the truth unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. And so we have to ask, is G, what is he doing? What, what is Jesus saying? Is he actually advocating cannibalism? Does Jesus actually want to eat his, his body, his physical flesh and his blood? Uh, is he talking about transubstantiation, which is the doctrine of the Catholic Church, that when the priests bless the Lord's Supper, which we're taking today, that it becomes Jesus' literal body, his physical body, and his physical blood? Okay, the answer to those two questions is no. That is not what Jesus means. But Jesus is pushing it as far as he possibly can to say, I am not, this is not just figurative speech. I really am, like, I, I truly am in my body, in my blood, the bread of life. I really am. And 
How are you going to take me in? Well, he's going to eventually, he's going to what? He's going to go to the cross. When is he going to go to the cross? He's going to do it in a couple of Passovers from now. So Jesus times his death at the Passover. To pull the thread all the way and say, I'm not just the feeding of the 10,000. I'm not just that bread. I am the bread of life because I die for you. And we'll talk about how do we receive that in a minute. But we receive Jesus by faith. And we take this meal. I'm so pleased that this happened, that we could time this with the uh, Lord's Supper today. When we take this meal, this is Jesus' body and blood for us. It's not his literal physical body and his blood. But this represents who Jesus is. And if we take this meal by faith in a few minutes, if we, if we put our faith in Christ as we're taking it, it really is nourishment for us. We're like those Israelites back in Exodus chapter 16, taking that Passover meal because we can then go out with nourishment. We can go out in haste in the freedom that God has given us. So Jesus' life-giving nourishment comes to us on the cross. So what will you do with this teaching? If you look at verse 60 and 61, the final verses I have there for you, Jesus, uh, here's the disciples saying, this is a hard saying. Uh, who can listen to it? And Jesus then reads their minds and says, are you taking offense at this? Do you take offense at me? There's a lot of people at the end of John chapter 6, which is like 80 verses long. I mean, it's it's a really long chapter. At the end, a lot of people leave Jesus after he says this. Because when someone says that they are the bread of life, and you need to take me if you want to have eternal life, those are words that should meddle with you a little bit, right? The, the worst thing you can do to Jesus after he says the bread, he's the bread of life or the light of the world or all these other things he's going to say about himself, is to be apathetic. It's just to not care. I mean, it is so disingenuous not to care about Jesus. I mean, you should care. You should care enough to be like, that guy's crazy. He said he's the bread of life. That guy's a freak. Nobody, what is he doing? Or, or you should care enough to be like, I'm going to go find something else to believe because I don't believe in that. Or I hope you care enough to say, you know what? I really do believe in Jesus. I really do believe he's the bread of life. I really do want to depend on him. But don't do him the disservice of just being like, yeah, he was a nice guy, a good moral teacher, said some interesting stuff. No, he is straight up arrogant if he's not telling us the truth. Anybody who walks around saying I'm the bread of life and isn't the bread of life is either crazy or he's lying. And so you need to treat him as such. You need to get fired up about Jesus one way or the other. Jim Elliott said, make my life a signpost so that when people encounter me, they have to go one way or the other, but not that they would just remain where they are. And that, he was doing that, why did he say that? He said it because of Jesus. That's how Jesus is. Jesus is not a guy who you can encounter and be like, whatever. Not if you're taking him seriously. These people got a little bit upset, and that would be a better response than remaining apathetic. So how do we in embrace Jesus as the bread of life? Well, first of all, Jesus says you have to do the work of believing, verse 28 and 29. The crowd asked, what must we do to be doing the works of God? 
In verse 29, Jesus responds, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Jesus says, This is all I require of you, that you would believe. You want to do works? You can call it a work if you want. All I need you to do is believe. That is the only way that you can respond to me. And we can be uncomfortable with this. Why? Well, if salvation is not through works, but it's by grace alone, if it's by faith alone, then we get a little uncomfortable because if it's by works, then we remain in control. Like we can kind of decide how much we want to do, how we want to do it, what we want to, you know, really engage with and and all that. But if it's by grace, we are no longer in a position of power or control. If it's by grace that we're saved through faith, we find ourselves in this position of being a servant to Jesus. Because if he saves us by his grace alone, then he is now the Lord. We're not in control of how much we want to do or not do. He is the one that remains in control. In verse 15, we learn that the people, after he does the miracle, Jesus does the miracle, want to take him and make him king by force. But Jesus here is saying, you can't take me by force. You can only take me by faith. We would much rather take Jesus by force enthrone him, elect him. Then we can have our own coup and and end his reign or we can, you know, vote for somebody else the next time. But if he's already king and he really is king and we, we either accept that it's true or we don't, we find ourselves in a position of serving him and not being in power over him. You know, everyone is a fan of transformation in our culture. Uh, If you go into Barnes & Noble or go to Amazon self-help section, everybody's a fan of transformation. I mean, I I challenge you to find someone that would say, you know, I don't don't really want to change at all. Like, you know, I'm, I really, most people want to change. It's a popular idea. People are a fan of transformation, but they're not a fan of being transformed. There's a difference. When you're excited about transformation, that usually means that you get to pick the books that you read, Right? that you get to decide where you want to change. But if you're being transformed by Jesus who is outside of you and he is doing the transformation on you, it's a very different experience. I was talking with Claire Hine this week and he brought to my attention uh, this, uh, this sculpture. It's called, I, can't, I, I, I couldn't find a free picture. I didn't want to pirate something, but it's called, you can find it online. It's called Self-Made Man by Bobby Carlyle self-made man. And in this sculpture, it's a bronze figure. And it's a man, a strong man, bent over backwards with a chisel in his hand, trying to chisel himself. And it is incredibly popular in our culture. Not because it's a critique of our culture, but because it is a symbol of our culture that people love. Self-made man, self-made woman, I'm doing my own transformation. That's not Christianity. Christianity is the Christ-made man. If that were a Christian sculpture, it would be Christ doing the chiseling on the outside and us being under his power. So the first thing that we're called to do is to do the work of believing, the work of believing, sitting under Christ, 
shaping influence as the bread of life. The second way we're called to respond is by sitting down to receive. Verse 10. Again, this, the feeding of the 5,000 or 10,000 is carefully scripted. And Jesus, before he does his miracle, tells the disciples to tell the people, he says, have them, in verse 10, have the people sit down. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Now, I believe Jesus did this, not simply because it's easier to serve people when they're sitting down. I believe he did this because he wanted the people to not just feel their hunger, I need sustenance that comes from outside of me. He wanted them to feel that they could do nothing about it, and all they could do was sit down and rest and receive the gift that was being given to them. You see, we spend our whole lives working so hard, doing whatever we're doing, to never have to admit that we actually need things that we can't provide for ourselves. We run around, we, we drive like crazy, we, we work our, our tails off doing whatever we're doing, and a lot of it is because we just don't want to sit down and, and embrace the fact that we are finite, that we have limitations, that we have physical things that we cannot provide for ourselves, and we have eternal life that we certainly cannot provide for ourselves. But we're so busy trying to provide for ourselves, so busy trying to be self-sufficient, that we just won't sit down and open our hands up to the Lord. And so Jesus instructs the people, if you want to receive my gift, if you want to receive the bread of life, you need to sit down. You need to stop. You need to wait until the bread comes to you. And then we have what we need. You know, Jesus is saying he's the bread of life, and how do we take bread? How do we take the bread of life? Jesus says, He's trying to help them understand. He says, it is my flesh, it is my blood. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you'll have no life in you. He's saying that a great analogy, a, a really a, 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 a heavenly analogy for how you take in what I'm doing for you is that you would, you would eat it. Now, there's, there's very few greater acts of faith that we engage in than eating something, all right? Think about it. What you're saying every time you eat something is, I will make this a part of me. I am willing to trust whatever's in this to become a part of me. We don't think about it that way. Uh, you will think about it if you travel to a developing nation. All right? If you travel to a de developing nation, you will be thinking every meal, um, should I eat this? And if I eat this, what will it do to me if it becomes a part of me? And, you know, you'll be traveling if you're, if you're with friends or missionaries overseas. They're like, you know, trust me, you can eat from this restaurant. And it is an act of faith to eat that food sometimes because you know that in faith you're taking that and if they're directing you in the wrong direction, then you're going to be in the bathroom in about six hours or you're going to be in the hospital, potentially. I've, I've actually been in the hospital several times overseas for what I've eaten. And so... This act of eating, it really is an act of faith. We're going to be doing it here in a minute, but it is an act of faith to take something into your body. And Jesus is saying, taking me is just like that. It is an act of faith. To take me into you, there's going to be an effect. And you have to trust that what I'm going to do in your life, if you take me in, is going to be what you need to have happen. You're going to have to trust me. And I'm that friend overseas that is telling you, you should take Jesus. You should take him. You can trust me. 
You should take Jesus as a real act of faith. So then we need to sit down. That's the second way we receive Jesus. And then the third way is we need to distribute the leftovers, verses 12 and 13. This is really important. When they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, verse 12, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had been eaten. When Jesus talks about things that are lost, we immediately need to think of all those out there who don't know him. Throughout the Gospel of John, when he talks about the lost, these are those he has come for who have not yet heard the Gospel. Notice there are 12 basketfuls of bread left over after the miracle. 12 is a significant number in Scripture. Why is it significant? Well, one, it is the number of perfect fulfillment you'll find throughout the Scriptures. It's also the number of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so what Jesus is saying here, listen to me, he's saying, what is left over from me after you receive me is enough to fulfill the mission of the church to fill up the new Israel with the bread of life. He's saying there are leftovers for a reason. Gather them up that none of it may be lost. Jesus, yes, he doesn't want to be wasteful with food, but it's more than that, okay? It's more than that. He's saying there is enough left over. Don't waste the bread of life that I am giving you. Yes, it is for you. The bread of life is for you, but it is not meant to be an end point that you would receive it for yourself. This is a distribution moment for the life of the world. You see, if those people there in that day just take the bread of life, think about it for real. They just take Jesus and the gospel for them as an end point. And they're like, thank God I've been saved. Hallelujah. I have my daily bread. I have my eternal bread. I'm good. Now let's just work on perfecting our little church so that we can have the best ministries, so that our kids can have all their needs met, so that we can hire more staff, so that we can do whatever we want to do as a local church. Think about if they would have made that decision. You and I would be lost. We are the leftovers. Do you get that? We are part of the new Israel that is not yet, that had not yet been brought into the church. And so we have the same decision. We can take the bread of life and be like, man, it really is good. It truly is good to have Jesus as the bread of life. And we can make this a moment of faith, but not a distribution moment. And if we do that, that means that there are more there are more that are part of these 12 basketfuls of the bread of life left over that are being called to know Christ that will not know him. One of my favorite verses, actually one of my favorite sections of scripture is 35 through 40. Verse 40, I'll just highlight this one. He says, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. This is the will of my Father. What makes the heart of the Father happy? What makes the angels dance in heaven because the Father set the culture to be so is when the lost are found. It's when those who do not yet believe in the Son of God believe in the Son of God. It's when you believe and put your hope in him and then you dis distribute 
the bread out to others so that they can have the bread of life and believe in Jesus Christ. It makes the heart of God glad. And so we have a decision. We can take what we've been given and like those baskets that could have just been left in the sun and rotted, we can leave the gospel with us and, and, it, and it takes no effect outside of our lives. We can be a church that's internally focused and work on perfecting our ministries to death, which is impossible. <laughs> so that's kind of a futile uh, thing to do. Or we can, we can work on discipleship here and growing here, but also work on taking the gospel out and distri- distributing it to the world, giving it away in evangelism. So we're going to do a couple of exercises. You can find this in your bulletin. I want you to take this out. I don't know if you have a pen or not, but you'll find on one side of your, your uh, handout a hashtag. Okay, if you don't have pens, um, you can do this mentally, I guess. You can fill it in later. Um, if you have a pen, you can actually do this. But this hashtag... Uh, represents, there's nine different areas, obviously, and you can add a person in each area. And so the, the goal of the hashtag is that, we talked about this about six months ago, actually, if you were here. We talk about praying for your hashtag. You can put it in your Bible. These are people who do not yet know the Lord. They could be neighbors, they could be family members, um, they could be of people in your immediate family that you're praying to know the Lord. And and you're just going to commit to praying for them. Evangelism starts with prayer. I mean, this is an act of God to change someone's life, okay? So it starts with prayer. But then you may actually be thinking, well, I don't know if I have nine people that I I really know well enough to pray for them to know the Lord. Nine nine non-believers, or not yet believers, hopefully. Okay, so here's another exercise you can do on the back, okay? If you're having trouble filling up your hashtag. This is something we did as a church way back when we started with the original core group. We talked about how are we going to influence our community for Christ. And this is an exercise called spheres of influence. The spheres of influence is these are different segments of your life. Okay, I'll I'll fill it in for you here so you can see what it looks like. This is what it could look like for you. Is that going to switch? There we go. Boom. Um, So at the top you have, here's a sphere of influence. I go to the gym, okay, or I go to work. Here are the people that I interact with there. I have, uh, my kids are on soccer teams, basketball teams, lacrosse teams, all kinds of teams. I'm around these people all the time. Who are those people? I have neighbors. Who are these people? These are not literal, these are not actual names. Um, This is how we have to start thinking, like, where am I? You know, we're always around other people. We're around people who don't know Jesus all the time. Where do you spend your time? Where are your spheres of influence? Name that sphere and realize God has put you there. God has put you there. And who are the people that you already know that you, you really don't know if they know Jesus? And again, and don't answer that question for people, okay? I mean, there are people who are like, yeah, I'm a Christian, or yeah, I go to church, or, you know, and, and then you find out like three years later where they go to church and, and it's a place that you're like, man, that is not a place that preaches the gospel. I know that church, you know, or, or they say they're a Christian and, and there's just no evidence of that in their life. And so you can begin to pray for these people, build a relationship with them. Or there may be people that it's very obvious to you uh, by what they say that they do not know the Lord. And so then you can flip it over and begin to fill out your hashtag and you can be- begin to pray. Another thing we're gonna do this week in community groups and this is a paradigm shift we need to make as a church, is 
you know, we plan a lot of events. Um, if you get your march guide out, you can get it on your way out. Along the right side of the march um, plan, the plan that we have for you and your life, <laughs> um, and you can opt into whatever you want, everything on the right side basically is stuff that you can invite your neighbors, people from the gym to, uh, soccer, you know, people from the soccer team. You know, we often look at these things, really, Bible study, uh, let, me, let me be a little more specific. Bible studies maybe not the best, just to be honest, okay? Even the worship service. I mean, you can invite your friends here, but moving from the neighborhood or the soccer team to the worship service is a pretty massive transition for a lot of people. And you probably feel that. It's like, I don't know. I don't think I can invite them to church. That didn't seem like the right next step. It may be, and it may not be, okay? So there's a lot of things that we've planned. So the men's breakfast meetup, the men's brewery night, women's hike and brunch, middle school defy gravity, high school putt-putt tournament, Dorcas volunteering, tween game night, all of that is something that would be really easy to invite someone to. It really would. My problem is... I am not really thinking about that event from that paradigm. I'm thinking of that event as an event for people at Trinity Park Church only, or I'm just not thinking intentionally. I look at my schedule that day, and I'm like, oh, yeah, men are having breakfast. Yep, too late to invite somebody at that point, right? So we have to get a little more intentional about knowing what's going on, knowing the uh, activities the church has provided. And, and you may have a friend. I have friends where... I really don't think them coming to hang out with the men at breakfast really might be the right, the right thing. And you can create your own events, create your own things that you want to do, okay? The point is, we have to be intentional, okay? We need to intentionally pray. We need to be intentionally thoughtful about where God has put us. And then, um, as Matt Chandler said in a sermon recently, we need 20 seconds of courage. 20 seconds of courage. We need enough courage for 20 seconds to cross that bridge with somebody where the inertia has set in for a long time. You've worked with this person for a long time. They've been on your kid's soccer team for a long time. And you're like, man, what's this going to do to our relationship? And some of the most painful aspect of this for us really is just the, the social awkwardness of that moment. So 20 seconds of courage to enter into the awkwardness and take a step. The first step is to pray. The second step is to be a little more intentional. The third step is just to be willing to do 20 seconds of courage of evangelism to walk into those relationships with others. So how do we respond to the gospel? We believe. We receive. Absolutely, you must do that, okay? The gospel is for you. And then we distribute we distribute. We take that gospel. We take those leftovers. There's enough left over the 12 basketfuls to fill up the whole church, the new Israel, to glorify God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we're so grateful that you're our bread, Lord God. Lord, we have so many needs in our lives. And we're grateful that you know yourself what you will do. That you are with us in those moments. Lord, we're so grateful that you've provided for us eternally in Jesus that even though we have the coronavirus 
going around the world right now, and we don't exactly know what the right information is. We don't know how to respond to it. The good news of the gospel is that we can respond by faith, trusting you that even if we are a loved one, were to get sick, and, and, and the chance that they could die, that there is eternal life for those who have put their hope in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you're our physical bread and our eternal bread. We thank you that you are the bread of life and, and that we can simply just believe in you. They can simply just receive you. And then we have the, the privilege, really, of, of distributing the gospel to the world. Lord, I just pray that you would fill us up, Lord. Fill us up with your bread, with, with faith, as we, as we come to the table in just a moment, Lord God. Fill us with faith, strengthen us, nourish us, and empower us to be a distribution center for the bread of life. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.